Welcome to Don't Trust the Mirror, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder, with psychoanalyst Maureen Kritzer-Lang, the queen of self-esteem. Maureen shares her personal journey of her struggles with an eating disorder and how that changed her life. Listen as Maureen shares her pain, her stories, and her triumphs. Today, as a psychoanalyst, her mission is to help as many women as possible overcome their challenges. Now, my secret life with an eating disorder. Hi, this is Maureen Kritzer-Lang, the queen of self-esteem. Welcome to my podcast, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder. I have a very special guest today, Nancy Graham, who I have known for many, many years. We have a long history together, Nancy, and have worked together on the Eating Disorder Association of New Jersey, which was many years ago. And we've gone to conferences through at Renfrew together and have been colleagues and friends for for quite a while. And I'm very um, honored and I am very lucky to have you as a guest today. I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about Nancy. Nancy is a professional relations representative for the Renfrew Center of Northern New Jersey in Paramus. She has many, many, many years of experience as a mental health professional clinician, both in New York and New Jersey. Nancy joined the Renfrew Center in 2001 and has done numerous presentations to everyone from parents to educators, to mental health facilities, to students, to community organizations about eating disorders and body image. And Nancy also has a private practice in Bergen County, New Jersey. And today we are here to talk about the myths of eating disorder treatment. And Nancy has a lot of experience in talking about eating disorder treatment, given that you work for Renfrew and uh, Renfrew has many levels of care. And I feel like it is very important to talk to people because there's so many myths and things that people think about with eating disorder treatment. Some are true, some are not true. And I it's a really very crucial and important topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. <laughs> then thanks so much, Maureen, for having me. This is great. And um, yeah, we do. We go back a long way. I think you were one of actually the first people I met. I went to a conference when I was first at Renfrew and we met and and here we are today. We've, you know, we've become friends as well as colleagues. And it's really a special, you know, special opportunity for me to be here. Right, be part of of your wonderful podcast. So, thank you, thank you. I thought we could start with the question, or the myth, I should say, mm-hmm. that you can look at somebody and know they have an eating disorder. Is that right. possible? No, for the most part, no. I mean, I would say that you know, someone who is struggling and suffering from anorexia certainly is associated associated with being underweight. So in that case, you might be able to suspect. But even if someone is severely underweight, you certainly don't want to assume that it's because of an eating disorder. You don't know the reason. Some people are genetically predisposed to just being smaller. Um, someone may have some type of an illness. Um, so you can't really assume by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder. So also there are so many other different kinds of eating disorders. For example, bulimia 
people who struggle with bulimia, it's hard to even know how to talk about weight in terms of an average or not average, but a normal, you know, something we would look at and we would say that they're not underweight, they're not overweight. Um, so you certainly can't tell. And even for binge eating disorder, um, it's a disorder that is not defined by weight. You can have an eating disorder really at any size or weight. So assuming that when you look at someone is really, uh, we want to try to recommend staying away from that. Right, from judging somebody on on their and And my podcast, which is called My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder, I can vouch for that since I had an eating disorder for many years and nobody knew. I kept it a secret. So I looked very average and nobody would have had any idea that I was struggling like I was I was struggling. Right, right. And that's that's so common too. It's so well hidden um, because you become really an expert at your eating disorder, you know, very perfect at it. But also even with anorexia now, just to kind of add to that, it also depends on the, your the weight and size that you start with with the disorder. So you could lose a great amount of weight very quickly, but if you started at a larger in a larger body, you could still be struggling with anorexia even if you're still in a larger body. You know, so that's something that, you know, that can be really difficult to define and really diagnose, but you have to look at the bigger picture. You know, with all the myths that we'll be talking about, you know, we can't isolate one little fact or image and say that this is someone who has an eating disorder. You have to look at the bigger picture and the whole history and um, everything that goes into it. And who they are and what they're struggling with and how they're really and and their relationship with food and their bodies right right which is all even actually much more important than the weight you know taking the focus off the weight is something and it's hard to do that because it is a visual you know we're so visual appearance is so important in our culture and that's what we see we don't see what's going on inside someone's head or what's motivating them or you know inside their bodies even if they're healthy or not healthy we judge by what they look like um, so we we can jump to conclusions because of that. Well, that's actually a great segue to my next question and the next myth, which is that social media is to blame for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, right, right. Now, we certainly know that social media does not help when someone is struggling with an eating disorder. And it can be sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back, can be something that for someone who's struggling with the other pieces can push them over. So primarily it's important to remember an eating disorder is a psychological uh, diagnosis. It's a psychiatric diagnosis. So you have to have something else going on. Otherwise, with social media the way it is today, we would all have an eating disorder, every single person, because we're also inundated with these images. As I said before, it certainly doesn't help and it can be, it can push you over the edge if you're struggling, but it, it's we can't really blame social media. But that being said, we have to really look at, you know, how it does contribute, especially for our younger kids who are not able to process what they're seeing and not really understand what they're seeing and really realize the impact it's having. And I think that's the challenge now. We have to be able to look at that and and help them to understand, um, you know, the connection between it, it's really about what how it's making us feel. 
and why it's making us feel a certain way. Um, so social media certainly does not help, <laughs> right. um, but it can't in itself cause someone to have an eating disorder. Well, it depends on how we feel, again, how we feel about ourselves and how strong our own self-esteem is and whether we can decipher and be able to look at social media and be able to see whether it's real or not real. And, mm-hmm. and I know in my practice, and I know you see this all the time too, it's how people compare themselselves. Right, right. So it's it's how we compare ourselves and how we make ourselves less than and that mm-hmm. critical voice that we have in our head that can be so detrimental to how we feel about ourselves. Right, right. And you said the key word there, it's comparison. We, we judge how we perform in almost every way as a human compared to how others are doing. And if you really think about that, there's, you know, the social comparison theory where, you know, I always say when I'm speaking to kids, you know, students, you know, if you get a B in the class, um, you, you don't really even know what that means unless you know what everyone else got. So if everyone else got D's and F's, then you did the best of everyone and you're probably going to feel good about it. But if you're the only one that didn't get an A, you're probably going to feel that you um, didn't, you know, you, that you that you were less than them, that you they were smarter than you. So um, it's the same with appearance, you know. And even though we all know, you know, intellectually, especially as adults, we all know that these images are changed and, you know, photoshopped and that they're not real. But in our minds, if we're constantly comparing ourselves to these perfect images, it's very difficult to measure up. And uh, and I'll, one of the things I'll say, especially to adults, is if you don't believe me, you know, look at perfect images or a, a fashion magazine if people even look at those anymore but it's the same concept and if you're looking at these and just constantly have them in your mind and then go and look in your a mirror you know your you know your podcast even you know the images in the mirror um, you're probably not going to feel really good about what you see even if you know that those aren't real because it's right away unconsciously you're comparing yourself right right and and it's don't trust the mirror and it's about right. that your insides with your outsides mm-hmm. And um, and that's when you can actually trust the mirror. But the mirror always changes, just like the images on social media always change. And and I'll just say that culture has always had an impact on women, on society, and how we feel about ourselves. Mm-hmm. But it's all and and certainly now the culture we're so bombarded with with uh, images and and. Um, so many things that it it's much harder to decipher mm-hmm. and it impacts people of all ages mm-hmm. and as you said those images the set you could look at your you're the same person but one day and it's so depending on your mood and your, and and how you're feeling and that's where that connection is so important to remember if you're having a great day and you're happy and you're excited you're most likely going to like what you see in the mirror a lot better but if it's a day that you're feeling upset or sad or angry that image even if it's the exact same image you're probably going to not like as much so it's so connected to that and i think most of us forget that people do forget how connected that is that's a very important reminder absolutely the next myth i'd like to talk about is families because families are big of somebody who has an eating disorder Mm -hmm. 
they, you know, how they're involved in treatment is very important. But also, I think so often families feel like they are to blame. And there's a lot of shame for the person that has the eating disorder and the secrecy, but there's a lot of shame in families too. And and, and I've worked with people and, and families, they come into this and they don't, they don't know. They don't know how to get treatment. They don't know how to navigate this whole world of eating disorders. And it's literally walking into a whole new new world of, of learning about it and getting educated as well. Absolutely. And, you know, family does, as you said, they play a really crucial role in the care, the support, and specific, particularly the recovery of someone with an eating disorder. We know that the more support they have from family loved ones, you know, is very much important and it really does help. Um, but, you know, the, and there is no evidence that eating disorders are caused by any particular parenting style. But I do actually, when I talk about this, I actually reflect back. I remember uh, many years ago when I was in graduate school, when we knew very little about eating disorders. You know, it's, it's uh, fortunately we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go. But in terms of understanding that, I remember hearing or just assuming, and I'm not even sure why, but, you know, it's, you know, someone who had an eating disorder, well, it was because they had controlling parents, particularly a father. And that stuck in my mind. And I was like, it was sort of that was what we believed or what was maybe even taught. I mean, I can't say that that was taught, but it's what I remembered. Um, and now, you know, I look back and it's it's sad because, again, it's not about blame. And that's not that's absolutely not true at all. But I think it also contributes to the stigma for families that, you know, they are oftentimes afraid to seek help because they don't want to be uh, blamed or and they're already feeling bad enough already, you know, because it is so complex. It's so un- difficult to understand for someone who doesn't understand mental health or the complexity of it. Um, And, you know, I think oftentimes, as I said, even, um, you know, treatment facilities or providers have reinforced that in some ways, which it's really quite unfortunate um, because families are an integral part of, of the healing process that needs to be done. We also know that genetics probably plays a role in many mental health illnesses, as well as eating disorders. We're learning more about that every day. So someone may actually be predisposed to developing an eating disorder, but that's still not about blaming or it's no one's fault. Um, You can't choose the genes that you pass down to your children or what you inherit. So, Well, they're still doing a lot of research on that. And I know that's very new in terms of genetics. Mm -hmm. I want to just... uh, say a little bit about mothers, because I think mothers are so often, there's a, you know, a finger pointing at them uh, for their own, maybe dieting for their own histories, for their own feelings about their body and themselves, mm-hmm. and so often get blamed for mm-hmm. that has an eating disorder. And it's interesting that you brought up fathers too, because I can look back on my experience and see that my mother never even dieted. She really was not a dieter. She was a very healthy eater. And I don't see her contributing to it. I, I know I always looked at her and felt like she was kind of an, a role model and an ideal like a body shape uh, for me. Mm-hmm. But my dad was the dieter. Interesting. And he was, yeah. exercise. Mm-hmm. And he was either on a diet or off a diet. 
And so in some ways, I feel like, and not to blame, but right. was an influence in my feelings about dieting and my body and food. Mm-hmm. So it can be very complicated and complex, right. but I think mothers sometimes get a bad rap. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, even again, culturally, who of us has not been around people that we can say were always on diets or even ourselves? You know, fortunately, I never developed an eating disorder, but certainly focused on diets a lot in my lifetime, you know, and and even now knowing the dangers of diets and that they don't really work. How often do we all say to ourselves like, oh, if I, you know, oh, I, you know, I just need to lose five, 10 pounds, what, you know, whatever that diet talk is. And we engage in that so often in our culture. Um, I, someone once gave me this button that they printed, that they made, and I'm actually looking at it now. It's, and it's a, you know, the circle with the line through it. And it says bad body talk because we engage in that so often. And again, I'm constantly saying to groups that I speak with them, be the one that doesn't allow for that to happen. It happens so often and we buy into it, we fall into it and it, it it's so unhelpful. So it's hard because it's when we, then when someone develops an eating disorder and we know that maybe mom was dieting or whatever, which who isn't nowadays and what moms, especially in, in our generation, were always talking about that. It was so common, you know, and um, that so so it's very easy to say that, you know, someone developed an eating disorder because of what they saw and heard. But that's where the genetic piece, I think, is being is is valuable, that we're learning more, that it may be much more than that. Certainly, again, I think if you live in that culture and you're hearing that and, you know, this is why we try to ask people to get away from that and stop with that bad body talk um, because it serves no purpose. But but yeah, I mean, even this topic alone, we could talk forever on this one in dieting and, and you know, so but uh, the, the what I really want to leave everyone with is, is that it's not about blame. It's you know, it's not genetic, whether it's behavior, all of that contributes, but it's certainly not done purposely to cause someone to develop an eating disorder. No one ever uh, wants that to happen. So education is really important. Absolutely. Just people cope, heal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the family work. I mean, at Renfrew, we do lots of family work. And I think all treatment facilities really um, understand the value of that and re-educating and and just helping everyone. Because we see that with a lot of our patients, that there are other family members in many cases who are also struggling. They might not be the identified patient, but they're also struggling. And many moms have struggled for years with their own issues. Um, And now, you know, imagine that, then your child develops an eating disorder and the guilt and feeling so horrible and, and the responsibility. So all of that needs to be addressed and, and supported within the family. It's very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. All right. Right. So what about this myth that eating disorders just occur and happen to women? Or we just get eating disorders or girls right. just get eating disorders. Absolutely. Again, culturally, we hear so much about women girls developing eating disorders. Right. Is that right? And, you know, it's interesting, again, because we've both I've been in the field for a long time and, you know, you've you've had the experience, too. Um, I mean, 
Even the diagnoses for eating disorders have evolved, fortunately. But many years ago, um, you know, I know many people listening are not um, professionals or know much about diagnoses, but um, the diagnosis for anorexia actually included the loss of, loss of menses so that even professionals who were learning about eating disorders and making the criteria were pretty much saying that this is something that can only happen to a female or a woman. So that certainly, you know, didn't help the idea that, wow, you know, a, a male couldn't even be diagnosed with it, with anorexia until recently. So we know that we know now it's not true. We know now that anybody can develop an eating disorder and that it doesn't matter, you know, what gender you are, you know, what you identify as. Anyone can really develop an eating disorder. And we are becoming more aware of that. And treatment for um, anyone at this point, you know, is, is much more accessible. The problem, though, also is that it's bad enough when you're a woman or a female seeking treatment because of the stigma. Uh, which hopefully is getting better. But for a male struggling, you know, it's an even bigger stigma because, you know, they'll, you know, people say, well, what do you mean? You know, only women have eating disorders or girls. So for them, it's even more difficult. Um, but we are hopefully moving towards a more inclusive treatment moving forward. And, and we need to understand that it's not something that just women and girls develop. No, and I know um, with men that we've heard a lot well, we've heard more about it, I should say, in terms of athletes, mm-hmm. you know, or it's mm-hmm. hockeys or swimmers or gymnasts. Correct. Right. And I think sometimes the, the eating disorder looks a little different. You know, we need to look at and I mean, I also think back when girls and boys are very young, what they and this is, again, cultural and what they see, you know, what they think or learn that their bodies should look like. So I think, you know, girls and women would much more want to be thin and small. That's what the ideal is. So their behaviors may develop as, you know, it, because of that. Uh, whereas men, boys want to bulk up and get bigger. So their eating disorder, their body image issues would be a little bit different. So they may develop a different type of eating disorder. Um, but all eating disorders are really all about emotion dysregulation. They just look different on different people and they can uh, play out differently, but the underlying causes can be the same. Which goes back to what we said originally, which is that it has so much to do with our relationship with ourselves and our bodies. Right. It, it can be all different scenarios. It goes back to what does that look like underneath? Because the eating disorder is the symptom, but really... Where does that come from? Right. Exactly. Really trying to uncover that. Mm-hmm. True. With recovery, mm-hmm. because you work a lot in, in re- treatment and recovery, mm-hmm. can people really recover? I mean, what does recovery look like? Sure. Well, so, you know, that's always yeah. a really good question, right? Because there is no carbon copy of what recovery looks like. And for every person who struggles with whether it's an eating disorder, any type of uh, mental illness, you know, substance use disorder, anything, recovery can look very different for each individual. It's so dependent on how long they've been suffering and struggling, um, how much treatment they're getting, the support that they have in their lives. So everyone is so different. So there really is no exact answer to what recovery looks like. 
For some people, they can be totally recovered. Others will struggle their whole life with different things about their eating disorders. I will say, though, that for the most part, we look at recovery as a process. It's something that we really need to be on top of and be aware that the eating disorder, as you said before, is a symptom. It's a symptom of some kind of a dysregulation. So if your way of regulating your emotions is through the eating disorder behavior, that's where the the treatment really comes in, where you really need to learn to not turn to the eating disorder under times of stress, because that will be your first reaction. That will be an unconscious choice at that point to either to to engage in whatever that eating disorder behavior is because somehow for you that's soothing and it's a way to cope. So that's where the treatment can be a little bit difficult, but also amazingly freeing when you can finally learn other more adaptive ways to cope with this emotion dysregulation. So it's so different for every person, but it absolutely is. It's definitely possible. And many people who get treatment will recover and do really well and never relapse into a serious eating disorder. Others might, you know, start to have some symptoms, but can pull themselves out of it with help or doing whatever it is they've learned to do. So many people do recover. It's definitely possible. The thing also we always recommend is to get treatment as soon as you know that you need help, because as with any coping mechanism or ways that you respond to things, it becomes unconscious. And the more you do it, the harder it is to retrain your brain to do something different. So the sooner you can get help and treatment, the better. But everyone is different. Everyone's everyone's, you know, healing process is different and their road to recovery is, is very, very different. What's that is neuropathways get laid down and it's right. not a linear process. It's no, not absolutely it's a not. one size fits all mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. And and I also believe uh, that there's different different people have layers of recovery mm-hmm. because what you struggled with early on in your eating disorder may not be later in life. Mm-hmm. But you may struggle with it. It may come up in different ways and different shapes depending mm-hmm. on what's happening in your life absolutely agree with what you said with which is it's about dysregulation and how we cope with that and how how well we've developed our coping strategies and being able to identify it mm-hmm. and we all at different times in our lives when we're under stress are going to not deal with things as well as we do when we're not under stress it could be temporary and also it's important to remember that we have to not beat ourselves up. And, you know, if in fact we do slip back a little bit in in whatever we're recovering from, you know, it's okay, but then we can get back up again. And as you said, it's not linear. So we can move forward eventually and understand that not all is lost if that happens, you know, and get back up and, you know, and the stronger we get, the easier that will be. And it's not going to happen overnight. It does take a while because it is it, it is not that easy. It's not as we know just about the food and just eating or whatever it is that on the surface people may be thinking or saying. Um, so it, we need to really remember that and not get too frustrated and not to give up and 
the other thing, again, we keep going back to supports and family. That's huge because we really need that for any of our healing with anything that we're struggling with in life. So the more support we have, the better. Well, and it's very courageous for somebody to go and get help. Oh, I, absolutely. It, there's a lot of shame in it. And and I remember, again, in my own experience that I was afraid to give up my eating disorder because it so helped me cope. Somebody's going to tell me and somebody would tell me like, well, just eat, just right, eat, right, just right. stop eating or stop throwing up or whatever it is. And it's not that easy. And so about putting other things in place. I hear all the time, but I know you do too, about people worried about being forced to eat. And like the, the issue of weight gain is so terrifying to people. It's scary. It's very scary. Right. Right. You know, I like to say, ask people who have not been through this, who just who are trying to understand it. I'll say, if you think of the, which it is, the eating disorder behavior is a coping mechanism and we all need coping mechanisms to get through life. And if I were to ask you to give up your, what you, your most helpful coping mechanism, what you do to get through difficult times, but said to you, you can't do that anymore. It would be very difficult. You can't, it's not, you can't just give that up. Why would you want to? It's what gets you through. So when you're asking someone to give up this behavior and, and you know, these, these habits that are helpful to them, of course, they're not going to be saying, oh, sure, great. I'd love to. And then what, as you said, what will they uh, replace them with? You know, you need, we need coping mechanisms. So it is a long process. It's gradual. Um, and it is, as you said, courageous. It's scary. Having, asking people to sit with feelings that are very difficult is very hard. It's very hard. And learning though, that you can deal with them and sit with them more than you probably thought you could. <laughs> I know that they change. I know that right. you feel at a certain point will will change mm-hmm. intensity, duration. Mm-hmm. The feelings will change in, in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thank you so much for coming and speaking about these myths about eating disorder treatment. Mm-hmm. I am very aware that there's a whole other side of things that we did not get to today. <laughs> right. Levels of treatment. Mm-hmm. As there are so many different levels of treatment and in, in helping people and provide that providing them with uh, support and help and and treatment and i would love to have you come back that'd be great i'd love to i'd love to this is and, fun i'd love to do this and it's important yeah, yeah, exactly. it's not just fun it's important and you know it's, i'm happy to to do this with you it's it's wonderful and, yeah. and i'm so happy that you are providing this for folks who hopefully can be helped and and be able to really do what you've been able to do and move forward in your life. It's not easy. Thank you. Well, we will, we will continue and we will uh, talk about the levels of treatment and what's involved in that. And again, look at some of the myths that are involved in, in different types of treatment. Uh, I think that's, that's again, something so important to offer the public and to share in terms of education and just the learning process of, of what's involved. I agree. I agree. And I'd love to come back. So thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And I value your, what you do and, and all the work that you do as well. Well, thanks, Maureen. And I look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you.
I'm going to have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder. And remember, trust yourself. Don't trust the mirror. Thank you for listening to Don't Trust the Mirror, My Secret Life with an Eating Disorder with psychoanalyst Maureen Kritzer-Lang, the queen of self-esteem. We hope you enjoyed it. Please visit DontTrustTheMirror.com where you'll find all our social networking links and can post your stories, comments, and questions. Until next time, remember, trust yourself. Don't trust the mirror.